And if you read any of them, they have to come up with very elaborate terms and disjointed ideas. Uh, people talk a lot about in, in philosophy about the economics of love. That is, how are we, you and I, as human beings, how do we relate? The, the notion of the self and the other or someone who is, you know, distinct from self, these are very important terms and very important ideas that the terms talk about. Even if you don't know the terms, you deal and think about these ideas, at least subconsciously, all the time. And what I believe the gospel says is that we, our identity should not be found in our own performance, not it should not be found in our own community that we belong in, but rather our the bedrock of our identity is found in what has taken place to us that God has done, something that we could not do. Many people get into the debates between Calvinism and Arminianism, and if you don't know what that means, is it God who saves us, or do we choose to respond to God? And the debate gets lost at a very quick stage, because before that debate can ever happen, even if you believe that you alone chose God for yourself, you could not have chosen to send Jesus Christ in the flesh. You could not have chosen to have God work with his covenant people, Israel, for generations in order to put them in the place of history that Jesus Christ's arrival would be a turning point. You could not have chosen to cause Christ to be willing to go to the cross in your place. And so the Calvinism-Arminian debate to me is not very important because it misses a foundational idea. You did not send Jesus Christ to the earth to die in, and take the penalty of your sins. You may respond in faith to the message that he offers you free grace, and you certainly have to respond in faith. But before you get to how that happened, you have to understand what has happened to you that God has done and you could have not. And that's where Paul is uh, be picking up in this chapter. There's, of course, this is the third chapter. There are two chapters beforehand. The first chapter deals with Jesus Christ as the preeminent ruler of the universe and the one who is the perfect representation of God. And then chapter two deals with how we know we have been redeemed by him. And then he continues these ideas. Of course, the chapter breaks were not written by Paul. And so he's writing a letter. He's continuing this idea of how Jesus has saved us. And then he breaks into 3 verse 1 uh, and talks about um, the, the salvation. Verse 1, if then you have been raised with Christ. What does raised with Christ mean? Well, Paul has just been talking about how Jesus not only descended from heaven to the earth, he died in our place, he went to the place of the dead, defeated death and the grave, and then after a period of 40 days, telling his disciples to wait in the city of Jerusalem for the sending of the Holy Spirit, then ascended to the right hand of the Father and sat down at the right hand of the Father. Biblically spe speaking, the right hand of the throne is just as powerful as the throne itself. Over and over again, we see this in the Old Covenant with Pharaoh and Joseph, with uh, Nebuchadnezzar and, and Daniel. Uh, these, these situations show up time and again where there is a ruler, there is an almighty sovereign, and he positions a, uh, uh, someone to rule in his place. Uh, and it says of Joseph that there was uh, no one in Egypt was greater than uh, Pharaoh, or greater than Joseph except for Pharaoh. 
No one in Egypt had the right to tell Joseph what to do. And so likewise, when Jesus sits down at the right hand of the Father, he begins to rule and reign over the universe and the coronation ceremony, which he went through as he entered into the heavenly throne room, he then was anointed with oil as the kings of old, David, Saul, etc. They would be anointed and poured oil would be poured on their head, designating them for the function of reigning as a king over God's community. And so it's, it's understood symbolically that Jesus Christ was coronated and that coronation blessing has overflowed into the earth at the day of Pentecost. So, so Paul has just been describing how Jesus has been uh, this, this amazing set of, uh, of redemptive developments that, that we could not have performed ourselves. God sent Jesus into the earth. And not only this, Jesus has been raised from the dead, and he went and took his place at the right hand of the Father, bodily ascended, and that is what we celebrate every year at Ascension. It's one of the most neglected uh, days in the Western uh, non-mainline Protestant uh, uh, church, and yet it's one of the most vital to understand the book of Ephesians and the book of Colossians. In Colossians 3, 1, when Paul says, if you have been raised with Christ, he is not just talking about if you've been raised with Christ from, that is, been united with him in the baptism of water. But also in a symbolic way, in a spiritual way, in a real true way, we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. And so what he does is he then begins to connect and, in, and say, this should inform. It's very helpful to notice the if-then language. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Paul does not say, seek the things that are above, do this weird mystical thing where you think about heaven all the time and uh, neglect your earthly responsibilities. He says, because this has happened to you, because Jesus Christ has ascended as a a, uh, precursor to your eventual living with God, in the age to come, because Jesus Christ is in God's presence on your behalf, then begin to think about the things that are in heaven. So he says, set your minds on the things that are above, not things on the earth. Of course, that mandates that Paul is not just saying, if you have been raised with Christ from the, that is being united with him in baptism. Christians believe that when we go through water baptism, we are, uh, are entering into and and joining with Christ in his death, and we are raised uh, from those waters in newness of life. But Paul is not just talking about having been uh, having been reborn or having a spiritual experience, but rather in a redemptive historical framework 2,000 years ago, when Jesus Christ ascended, you and I in God's economy ascended with him, and we've been seated with him in the heavenly places. And so Paul begins to talk about this idea of your your old self and your new self. But how are we to understand these ideas? Uh, I, there have, there's never been a time in my life where I've said to myself, oh, today I'm John Weiss, and then the next day, oh, I'm not John Weiss anymore. There's never a moment in our salvation, yes, we see the fruit of the Spirit, yes, we see my patterns, my desires are changing, but there's a continuity of your experience, your memory that happens for a believer. So what is Paul talking about this old self and this new self? I heard some ridiculous uh, tweet this week, 
And there are these people who are trying to perform whole head transplants. It's man's desire to defeat defeat mortality. It's man's desire to change himself. And yet we cannot. Uh, It's going to be, it will be impossible for head transplants. Um, And hopefully so. Uh, It would be a gross uh, marring of the human frame if they would let doctors do that. So, that being said, uh, what are we to understand about the self and and how we grow in Christ? Well, I want to take us through a few ideas. Philosophically defined, the self is the essential qualities that make you you. Have you ever thought of this, uh, that you are a distinct human and you're interrelating with other people and the way in which you communicate with them, the way in which you interact with them is done in in kind of a, a way that is pretty typical. You, you use language, you use your body, you, but you also have a soul, mind, emotions, and those things can be hurt, offended, or, or excited, or, or uh, pleased. And you have a person, and that person is a continuity of experience throughout your life. When you become a Christian, you do not forget everything that has happened to you but you are called to put away the old self. You're called to put to death the old self and to put on the new self. Well, how do we understand this? Well, a natural understanding of the self, uh, a humanistic or just a rational mind that doesn't believe anything about spiritual realities may define the self as the collective experiences that you've accumulated throughout life, your political affiliations, your personality uh, traits, your political preferences, your money, your status, your class in your social, you know, whether you're middle class or you're rich or poor. And your yourself, as defined by the rationalists, is just kind of a tape measure uh, being written on or a log uh, you know, as you punch in the numbers on the calculator, the the tape moves on, and this is you. But the Bible says that you as a human being are created and made in the image of God. You are much more complex than just the sum total of your experiences. And, and what makes you you, you carry along with you in your person. It's a spiritual thing. It's not just in terms of the way that they are now thinking about the brain. It's not just the measure of electrons firing randomly in some beautiful orchestra of complexity. You are not just the sum total of electrical synapses firing in your brain. You are a person. You have a soul. And so you exist, and yet the Bible says that the foundation of your existence, what truly defines the self for the Christian, is not the sum total of experiences that that we have accumulated, but the truth that has been declared to us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The self, of course, changes over time. We develop, we mature, we experience things. Those are true events. And so, yes, we do accumulate experiences, but they are not radically shaping. The concern, therefore, of every man, whether he's a rational man or a spiritual man, whether he's a believer or an unbeliever, is if myself is changing over and over again, and this year I know different things and I've developed or I've changed, then if I'm moving through a state of becoming, then what will I eventually be? A lot of people try to do uh, 
self-improvement exercises throughout their life. They go to the New York Times bestsellers list under the entrepreneurial section or the life improvement section. They buy the books, they attend the seminars. They're attempting to improve their self. They're attempting to improve their life and to change in such a way. But at the end of all your days, you are going somewhere and you will become something. And so for the natural man and the Christian man, every man, and, and by, when I say man, I also mean woman, man and woman, uh, mankind, every person eventually begins to think, although they may try to hide it or, or put it into the corner, they eventually have to deal with what will they eventually become. And this we could talk about as being personal eschatology. Most of us, when we think about eschatology, we think about the end of the world or, you know, fireballs raining down on the earth and Armageddon. And uh, I don't believe the Bible teaches that sort of end of the world, but that is what you might call a global eschatology. But you also have an end. And so your personal eschatology is important and it's in view here. And so Paul deals with these things. Of course, as a Christian, our salvation by God through Jesus Christ radically determines our own self-understanding and therefore also our destiny. Uh, it, it tells us how to live in this world that we operate in, and it also helps us to even understand that we have not been yet fully revealed. You and I, we are true human beings made in God's image, redeemed by the blood of his son, and yet we have need of change. There are character traits, there are experiences, there are things you do, things I do, which need to be changed. And that's what Paul is dealing with. The Christian, uh, the Christian salvation that is, is taught by the church is not a, you are not saved, you then believe in Christ, and then we wipe your brain, and we fill your brain, and then you wake up from your zombie-like experience, and you're now a perfect, matured believer. That's not how the Christian life is, and Paul says that in this chapter. We individually have been redeemed by God, and who we are becoming is yet to be revealed, though we have a general understanding of our destiny. You may despair while looking at your own sinfulness, even though you, you know that you trust in Christ, you may despair because of your failures, your imperfections, your lack of achievement, whatever you're looking at, but you are failing to remember Paul's words saying that when Christ, who is our life, appears, will be revealed with him. Verse 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You are not directing the ship. Your life has a true and good destiny. Verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. What that means is, is that the perfection that you are, are guaranteed, because Christ has saved you, the man, you are on a journey of sanctification more and more ever towards Christ and to be like Christ, and he will not uh, be unfaithful. He will be faithful to complete it. You will, at the end of your days, at the end of all human history, live with the Father and the Son and the Spirit, with all of redeemed humanity, and you will be uh, a true representation of a vital human. Not a marred human full of sin, not a human who didn't accomplish enough or read the Bible enough in their life, not a human who regrets at the end of his days on his deathbed. You will be a human 
that has been redeemed by God. And when Christ saves the man, he saves all of the man. So we're not to live for ourselves. This is, again, radically shaping the direction of how we live as a believer. We're not to live for ourselves as if we're the makers of our own destiny. Because you have goals for your life, you have plans for your life, you have ideas for your life that are contra God's ideas. Maybe they're sinful, maybe they're not. Maybe it's a matter of chocolate versus vanilla. But you are not the primary captain of your ship. Jesus Christ is assisting you by his spirit. And so we're not the makers of our own destiny, which is the chief principal temptation of living as a Christian in America. Because American exceptionalism, the entire history of our country, is built on the idea of rugged individualism. I can go and take this mountain down. I can chop down the, the whole forest and build my empire. You know, I can homestead. I can go and, and create a, a wealth empire. I can be uh, wonderful. And how many of you remember the, the poem with Ozymandias? The man goes, if you've never heard the poem uh, with Ozymandias, it's an amazing poem. I really encourage you to, to get a hold of it. But basically, I'm going to paraphrase it because I, I don't have it memorized. A man comes and he's walking through a desert and he arrives upon a statue and it says, you know, this is the statue of, uh, of Ozymandias, great and mighty is his empire. All ye mighty look upon his works and despair. And, and it's this pillar standing in the desert. And so what's left unsaid, the, poem, the poet wants you to come to the conclusion that Ozymandias is dead and his empire is gone. And so the point of, of your life is not just the accumulation of wealth, power, or personal betterment. It's to serve the Lord and to put on the new self. So Paul commands us, based on an informed identity of you will be like Christ, to live in an inaugurated way. What do I mean by inaugurated? Who's the president on the day that the next president gets inaugurated? The previous president. And then on that day, the guard changes and the new president comes in, into power. But while the president is standing there, the president-elect, the, the inauguration ceremony is bringing him in. Paul, as it were, is commanding us to live in an inaugurated way, knowing our destiny, knowing that one day we will be with Christ forever. We will be sinless. We will be perfected. We will be glorified because he has chosen to do this. Knowing that, we should begin to live as if heaven, heaven is coming down now. Verse 5, put to death, therefore... The transitional and connecting phrases in the scripture are the most important to understand grace. Jesus Christ has raised you up with himself. He has taken you with him, and you are, according to the book of Ephesians, spiritually seated with Christ in heavenly places now. It doesn't look like it. There's no like connecting wire uh, between my head and heaven, but it's true. You are seated with Christ in a spiritual way. And because of that, he says, put to death, therefore, because of what God has done for us, we can begin to do these things. We do not do these things in order for God to save us. And getting the order wrong is disastrous. Getting the order right is vital. So he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. Now, 
One of the things that I think is another vital importance to understand when you're reading the epistles is Paul is not writing to the world. He's writing to Christians. He is not writing to unbelievers, but rather believers. And so when you hear the verse, put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, etc., you must realize that Christians do these things. Real people who believe in Jesus Christ, who trust him for their salvation, who, who go to church, do these things. And Paul is saying, put them to death because of the revelation of where you're going. The call to cease from sinning is not given to the world, but the Christian. And the Christian is not arbitrarily called to a higher moral code. It's not as if Christianity is this rule club where we all dress nice once a week and uh, you know we give some money and put it in a basket. Uh, that is not the Christian life. Christianity is not an arbitrary set of rules that are just culturally different than Islam, Buddhism, whatever, what have you. The, the Christian is called to a higher moral code because of the word therefore. Because of what Christ has done for you, you can now begin to walk like him, not because you joined the the Christian club. Notice the time-sensitive language in all of these verses. But now you must put away. Now Now what is that Paul has announced to you that you've been raised up with Christ? See, you have been raised up with Christ, but you may be living in sinful ways because you don't understand that when you placed your hope and trust in Christ, when God recreated you in Christ Jesus, you did become a new man. And all of those things which have happened, Christ defeating death on your behalf, Christ ascending to the right hand of the Father on your behalf, those things have become true for you, though you may be ignorant of them and are still living as if you are just a normal human. These things have happened, and because Paul announces them, he can then say, but now. But now you must put away all of them, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. Because we are died to sin, Christ calls us to love others. So Paul here is now moving from the self to to begin to talk about the community. Um, Whereas humanism offers a toleration and a mere acceptance of others based on some abstract human solidarity, Christianity as a philosophical system, as a system of life, offers a real way to love a new individual who doesn't just merely tolerate his neighbor or not hate his neighbor, but now actually loves and self-sacrifices and gives. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. This is a command to believers who are already baptized, who are already following Christ, to put off the old self. You do not need to clean yourself up to become a Christian. Verse 10 again, part B, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You as a human being... Within you resides a deposit of the image of God. It says in Genesis that God made them male and female in his image, and in the image of God, he created them. And so though sin has marred that image, you retain as a human, you retain that image of God. But Jesus Christ came to unfold redemptive history. Yahweh wanted his creation back, 
And not only that, he is jealous for the deposit of his image which he has placed in you. And so Paul says to put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. What does he say in verse or in chapter one? He says, Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. So your new self is being renewed when you obtain knowledge, when you come to a spiritual experience of the truth of Jesus Christ, and that through communing with him, through prayer, reading the word, taking the sacraments, etc., you are then able to be renewed in the new self. This is why the Protestant doctrine of sola de- deo gloria, uh, to God alone be the glory, is so vital because you do not accomplish your own sanctification. It's not up to you. It's you have to participate. You do have to work out your fear and trembling, but it is God alone who causes you to even want to go there. And Paul says here that it is upon the knowledge, attaining the knowledge of Jesus Christ, that you are being renewed. The new self is put on and is making progress by coming to the knowledge of Jesus. Verse 11, here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. A society which does not have Christianity at its core can never solve the deep sin problems of racial hatred, uh, hatred of others, hatred of people who are different than you in any way. What happened in Ferguson, Missouri over these last few, I guess, months now, or at least a, at least a month, is only able to happen in a community that has been deeply fractured because they have not come to the truth of, ver- of what verse 11 says. Now, we're not saying to Ferguson, Missouri, you should just live as if verse 11 is true for you. We're saying without coming to Christ, without him remaking you, you can never put away the hatred, the anger, the malice that you have towards your fellow man because those are a part of your old self. You must change and that change can only take place as a gospel-informed change. If, there is, if a Christian is truly living according to the gospel, they live as if there is no Greek or Jew, barbarian or Scythian. What that means is we can love our neighbors. We can, only, we can not only not hate, but also when the pressure builds in a situation such as a racial death or a racial murder or economic or class warfare, we can let the pressure gauge off knowing that Christ is all and in all. That is, he is forgiving and he calls us to forgive. So what Christ has done is the only resolution to the sins of violence, oppression, and racism. And because of that, Christianity as a philosophical system not only deals with how the self changes, but also deals with how the self relates to others. Humanism as a system and humanistic philosophies mainly focus on the individual, and they never move on because they haven't solved the individual. And so because of that, they can never move on to to establish a true environment for human flourishing and human society. Again, Christianity provides the only sociological framework for true human flourishing. It's only in Christianity where you can not only love your neighbor, but also you have to love your enemy. And because of that, Paul says, you must do this by putting on the new self. You cannot operate in rational, 
natural mindedness and love your neighbor or, and love your enemy. It doesn't make any sense to the natural mind. And in fact, it's quite logically clear to the natural mind why you don't love your enemy, because he's going to destroy you. You, you kill your enemy. But Jesus calls us to love our enemies. So we love others through mercy, forgiveness, and meekness. And so Christian living is always informed by and empowered by God's reality. Again, <clears throat> in verse uh, 12, he says, put on then. He uses a chiasm. Um, for those who are newer, chiasm is a literary device. It's an ordering of ideas that are nested. And you can think of it like a hamburger. There's a bun, and then there's meat, and then there's another bun. Everybody who was at the picnic knows what I'm talking about. Bun, meat, other bun. And so there are these two ideas that Paul uses to emphasize the burger. What's the best part of the cheeseburger? The burger. In fact, there are many people who don't even like the bun. Um, I hope to be one of those people someday. <clears throat> he says, put on then. Notice the connecting word. He doesn't just say, you need to do this. He says, because of what's happened, you can. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Verse 13, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, you must also forgive. And then he uses that phrase again in verse 14, put on love. So he says, put on the new self, put on love. And in the center, he has this big idea, which he's trying to magnify. Remember, in, in old Greek manuscripts, they don't have bold, italics, or underline. And they don't have any HTML formatting or CSS. They just have the ability to uh, use literary structures to emphasize things. So Paul, by using put on love, put on compassion, put on have compassionate hearts, and then in verse 14, put on love, which binds everything together, he uses those to frame in and to call attention to the central idea of verse 13, which is, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. It is only after coming to the knowledge that all your sins are completely wiped away by what God has done that you can ever think about forgiving others. If the debt that, has, that you owed is completely and totally wiped away, then obviously you div live in a different economy. What I'm trying to say is, let's say you live in uh, uh, a world in which you and I, we freely exchange goods and services and we trade. And one point I... Uh, come into debt. I have to buy a house or my leg gets cut off or something, something terrible happens and I'm now in debt. Well, I also have other little tiny debts that I've got receipts for where other people, they borrowed, you know, a tool and they never gave it back. So they, they owe me for those things. But let's say in this hypothetical world, you then get invited to move somewhere else. And upon moving somewhere else, they tell you all your debt is gone. What's the resolution that you come to? Oh, wow, I live in a total different kingdom, a total different economy where all debt magically vanishes. I don't have to hold on to these debts for my debtors because apparently everything is great in this world. It's no longer a scrimp and save, starve type of morality. It is now a free, gracious, liberal, giving world that you now reside in. You have been forgiven a complete and total debt that was massive, that you were unable to pay. And so Paul says, as you have been forgiven, you must forgive. It's only after being forgiven that you can even hear that as grace. <clears throat> 
We're only able to forgive others because we've been forgiven by the Lord. And we're only able to walk in kindness and meekness because God in Jesus, in Christ Jesus has come and stooped down to us and condescended to our level. What do do the Psalms and the prophets say? God is higher than the heavens. The heavens cannot contain him. Job says that God himself stretched out the heavens and laid out the foundations of of the deep. Now, because of our amazing telescopes that God has graced us with, we can see that not only did he found the foundations of our earth, but he also is magnificent in creating galaxies, supernovas, et cetera, et cetera. And God himself has stooped down to our level. As in the form of man, through Jesus Christ, he came and offered us forgiveness. And so if God can be meek and humble, then we can. You are not called as a Christian to be meek because meekness is a good virtue. It's not a, it's not a natural-minded virtueness. It is a realization that God has done this for me so I can do it for others. <clears throat> So Paul ends these gospel-informed instructions to every believer. Uh, After this section, he's going to go talk to uh, husbands and wives and children and slaves and masters, etc. But he ends these gospel-informed instructions, which he gives to every believer, with a call to live in thankfulness for what God has done. Um, Just as there is chiasm, that is bun, burger, bun, there's also literary repetition. Notice how Paul uses a threefold repetition of the idea of thankfulness. What he's trying to say is, this is really important. This is really important. This is really important. He does it over and over again to get your attention. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. There, again, he's talking not only about personal eschatology, but also corporate eschatology. What are we, where are we going as a society? Well, according to Christianity, we're going to the peace of Christ. We're going to the cessation of of every evil through the peace of Christ, which we were called to in one body. He says, and be thankful. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts toward God. That's what happens when we, as as a community, we actually sing. And when we sing together, like we did this morning, we are not just singing to the Lord, although we are, but you and I, we are hearing each other's voices. We are lifting up a praise to God on the earth. We are affecting our atmosphere and our culture here now, and we're informing one another. He says, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That's actually Ephesians 5.19, but uh, verse 16 and 5.19 of Ephesians are the same. Uh, Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts toward God. So there's that idea. Be thankful, and while you're doing this other stuff, be thankful. And then verse 17, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So instead of anxiety, worry, and strife, Christ offers us peace. He says, let the peace of Christ reign in your hearts. Well, what's reigning in your heart if the the peace of Christ is not reigning? And why does Paul have to say that? Because as Christians, we get anxious, we worry, we fret. Uh, just ask me how my house is doing these last this last week. <clears throat> the things are falling apart like everywhere, and it's beautiful. My computer, which I bought for my new company, I I honestly don't say this to boast, but my computer, which I bought for my new company, wouldn't turn on last night, 
and it wouldn't turn on for an hour or two, and it still isn't turning on. And I think it's, at the end of the day, going to be okay. But I have the temptation in the moment to worry, to fret, oh no, can't go to church, got to go drive to a Mac store in Chicago or Cincinnati or Columbus. I got I to gotta get you know, somebody to contact Tim Cook, get this thing fixed. Um, the temptation for a believer is to sin by being anxious, by worrying, etc. So Paul says to guard against that, let the peace of Christ reign in your heart. I, I genuinely think, I hope the computer is going to be okay, but I am tempted and it's only the believer which is called to put to death anxiety. It's not, Paul's not writing to the world. Hearts that are not satisfied, but are full of anxiety, and they're preoccupied, not just with a situation like your computer won't turn on, but with all of your life, you're just trying to grab and ob- obtain and make that new promotion, make that new uh, house, get, you know, whatever, the next stage of life, get that degree, whatever. If you're grasping at those things, full of anxiety, full of worry, and you're not going through life letting the peace of Christ reign, then you have not been satisfied by what God has done on your behalf. And it's only by being satisfied with Jesus Christ and what he's done for you that you could not have done, that you can, in the midst of life, be thankful only a heart that has first received and been satisfied by God's love can give thanks back, back to him because we don't have anything of our own to give. Think about giving as an economic activity. You give thanks. Thanks is a thing that you give. It's not just turkey that you eat in November. Thanksgiving is not at all a one-time-a-year way of living. It is a way of living in which you are offering up the sacrifice of lips, the thanksgiving which is due to God for what he's done. But if you're not informed of what he's done, if that's not the operating principle in your life, even if you intellectually agree with that from time to time, you are called to remember the gospel until it becomes the center and operating principle of your life. Because of what Christ has done for you that you could not have done for yourself, you can now be thankful all the time. Again, When we're anxious, the only remedy is to reflect again, not reflex again, to reflect again on God's love for us. Paul instructs us in the practical application, of course, in this verse, uh, verse 16, of reading the word, letting it dwell in us, meditating upon it, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, and teaching and admonishing one another in wisdom. He, He brings out these practical things that the church should do in a corporate setting, But then he goes beyond that to talk about things that don't just happen at church. This gospel-informed living doesn't stop at church-related things, but encompasses whatever we do in word or in deed. What is there that you do that's not either in word or in deed? Nothing. So you're to be thankful for, for, for what God has done in everything that you do. Whether you're meditating about a future endeavor or a future plan, or whether you're trying to put together uh, a new you know, area of your life, or whether you're cleaning up the pieces of a broken glass on the kitchen floor, you're to be thankful because of what Christ has done. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We do ask, Lord, that you would remind us of our deep sinfulness, that we, according to Paul, once walked in sexual immorality, malice, slander, jealousies, envies, wraths, strife. God, 
grasp, uh, we, we were grasping at everything but you, we would ask, Lord, that you would remind us of our great need, even now that we are believers, even now that you've begun to shape our life and, and direct our life to look like Christ's. We ask that you would remind us of your grace, that we would see you, Lord, as a wonderful, gracious God, a loving Father who is quick to forgive. Lord, we ask that you would give us an ability this week to meditate upon your word, to let it dwell in us, and to let it inform everything that we do. Lord Jesus, we do ask that you would reign in our hearts, that your peace would be the central operating element of our emotions. Lord, that we would be angry when it's righteous to be angry, that we would be uh, calm and anxiety-free in the midst of the storms of life. And Lord, that you would cause us to do those things that are excellent, the good works that you call us to. But Lord, I pray that if there are any in this room who are operating as a Christian, but do not truly believe that they have been accepted, if they're just living in, I must do, I must perform, I pray that you would reveal that to them, that you would give them strength, give them grace, help them see the free offer of grace as Jesus extends his hand toward them. In your name we ask for these things. Amen.